There's a sign up here which says, please ensure you use whiteboard markers on this whiteboard, not permanent markers. There's a story there, I'm sure. <laughs> Actually, I moved into a place um, at college and they told us the rules and one was you're not allowed to feed any rats. <laughs> there must be a story there, I don't really understand. Um, I've discovered over many, many years a first-hand empirical study that bouncers at nightclubs do not look nicely, do not smile kindly upon skinny white guys with glasses who talk for a living. Uh, I've found that by great kind of empirical and anecdotal research. So this uh, story that I'm about to tell you, uh, which a friend told me, uh, a true story about DJ Somatic, kind of makes me smile a little bit. Um, I don't know if you know the, the establishment called Establishment on George Street, the uh, very, very trendy, very, very expensive bar, uh, which everybody wants to get into. In fact, there's always a line out there. I'm always amazed by the number of people who want to get into here. Essentially, different DJs of particular musical persuasions entertain people for a whole evening. And this particular night, DJ Somatic was playing, who I'm told, although I don't really know about such things, is one of the premier late-night DJs in Sydney who has played in all the big places and people line up for miles to go see. Anyway, so this friend of mine, mate Rich, his name, um, uh, my friend's name was Rich, my, the name of the guy was, just gone from my head. Oh, that's right. It was DJ Somatic. Right? His real name's Rob, but he calls himself DJ Somatic. And in fact, he was lining up to see his own show. Because he's not a pretentious DJ. He doesn't go in by the back entrance. He goes in by the front with the rest of the punters, dressed kind of like I am, in his regular, casual clothes. And here is where the story gets interesting. You see, lining up all the way down King Street to enter his own show, he gets finally to the rather burly-looking bouncer of questionable kind of uh, intelligence and presents himself to enter in to DJ Somatic's night at establishment. And the bouncer looks at him, not looking kindly upon skinny white guys with glasses, and says, no, you can't come in. And he said, why? No, mate, you can't come in dressed like that. And DJ Somatic, a.k.a. Rob, said, well, why not? I'm abiding by the dress code. No, mate, you can't come in with those shoes. And DJ Somatic talked back. They're the same as your shoes. What do you mean? And the consultation went on for a while. And DJ Somatic, getting a little bit more frustrated, finally said, look, are you going to let me in or not? And the answer was no. Okay. So he walked down the street and made a call to the owner of the establishment telling him why all the punters lining up on George Street would have to come back on another night. Uh, Things did not go very well for that particular DJ. You see, sometimes when you cast judgement, when you make a decision about someone or something, you're actually making a judgement on yourself, aren't you? You're actually making a decision about the value of yourself, even as you think that you're judging someone else. I had a terrible, terrible conversation. This boils my blood, with a singer, a a reputable musician who should know better. And she explained to me proudly that she doesn't think that she's very influenced by the Beatles. And I looked at her. (laughs) You do realise that's like saying, that's like if you're a poet saying you're not that influenced by the alphabet. Right? (laughs) What do you mean? 
And in that moment, she caused all my rage and fury to come down upon her because actually, as she was judging the Beatles, she was not judging the Beatles. She was judging herself. <laughs> but of course, we've all done this. I know we've all done this. It's not just singers. It's not just bouncers. I did this in one of my English students, foolishly, thinking that uh, we were being trained here at uh, university in the English faculty to make sound judgments on artistic merit. And I, I walked into this tutorial as we were talking about Jane Austen, and I'm about to lose every single woman in this building, but that's okay, it's the truth. And I just, look, I don't get Jane Austen. She doesn't do anything for me at all. Mindless, boring monotony. Unfortunately, some of the people in that room were doing their theses on Jane Austen. That didn't go well for me. See, I recognise now that in that moment, I was not actually casting a sound literary judgement on Jane Austen. In fact, sound literary judgment was casting judgment on me. And I could not continue in that class <laughs> the same footing that I began. That's the problem. When you cast judgment on something that is really, truly in a position of authority over you, then you actually cast judgment on yourself. And in fact, that's exactly the story that we hear today about Jesus. When the Sanhedrin casts judgment on Jesus, they bring down judgment on themselves. And the message for today is for all of us, we need to work out what our decision about Jesus is, what our judgment about Jesus is, because what you decide about Jesus is terribly important to what will be decided about you when you stand before your maker. So we've been looking at the series, um, Jesus Hates Religion. And we haven't been meaning that in, in the sense that Jesus is kind of prejudiced or, or hateful person or anything like that. It's really just about Jesus exposing religion as something which is profoundly terrible for people, profoundly bad for your soul. You see, I didn't come here at all, and I really want to stress this, at all to pick fights with other religions right, or other denominations at all. But the more that I, I talk to people who come from other religions in the world, the more I see this common trend, this common understanding that somehow, somehow we need to make our consciences clear before God by our good works to work our way up to a state in which we're ready to stand before our maker, to do good things, to, to go to temples, to sacrifice things and animals and money or whatever it is and to prove our worthiness before God. And it's a terrible burden. The other thing I noticed talking to these people is it's a crushing burden. A crushing burden because you never know that you've done enough, do you? You can never know that your religious effort has been enough to outweigh the things that you're ashamed of and the times when you haven't lived up to your own standards, let alone the standards of a holy God. And that's the problem with religion. And that's why Jesus is on the warpath against religion. Because it kills people. It either leads them to inflate themselves up with the self-delusion that actually, by their own sheer willpower, they have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and can stand confidently before God. Or when they realise that that's a lie, it leads them to despair, doesn't it? Because no one, by their own effort, can be as good as God deserves. And that's what Jesus is on the warpath against, exposing the hypocrisy of religion. And it's a great relief to us when he comes and does that, as we've been seeing over the last two weeks. 
because it's a huge reversal. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, Jesus hates religion. Didn't Jesus start one of the biggest ones? Right? Didn't he? What are we talking about? As uh, Megan pointed out with this whole Easter religious festival series, well, the, the point that this series is trying to get at is that in Jesus, the meaning of what religion is has totally been reversed. You see, religion before Jesus was about what we do and God looks down and goes, yeah, I'm pleased with that, right? We do, God approves. That's the direction of religion. It's the cultic practices, it's the sacrifices, it's the good works, it's all the things we do to get right with God and Jesus comes along and says, no, it's not what we do and God approves, it's what God does and God approves. He switches it on its head. Jesus comes and offers himself, offers himself as a sacrifice for us. He offers himself as a temple for us. And he says, come, follow me and watch me do everything for you. He's turned religion literally upside down. You see, in this final series, I actually want to, I was going to try to Photoshop on the, on the title. I actually want to reverse that around because today we actually see a change of direction. Previously, it's been Jesus hates religion. Today, we see religion fight back. And today we see religion hate Jesus. It's not religion as an entity, but religion as those with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo, the the people who've made a living making sacrifices and running the temple and doing all that religious stuff, they fight back because they realise correctly that that change of direction kind of puts them out of a job. And so they conspire through the betrayal of Jesus' one of his closest friends, and through a late night arrest to bring him through the cold, deserted streets of Jerusalem under curfew, bring him to the high priest's house. Now, it would have been a bitterly cold night. And we're told in other Gospels that one of his disciples, at least Peter, was standing around, maybe with John, around the courtyard warming themselves in a bitterly cold, hastily convened trial in the high priest's house. And here they put Jesus on trial. They misunderstand one thing about Jesus and they get, really get, another thing right about Jesus. And I want to quickly look at those two things. What they misunderstand about Jesus is his claim to abolish the temple. Uh, Two witnesses came forward and stated, this man said, I can demolish God's sanctuary and rebuild it in three days. So that's the thing they misunderstood about Jesus. He didn't actually say that. He said, you destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's talking not about some plotting to uh, have a terrorist act on the temple. He's talking about the end of religion where he himself will become our temple. Let me kind of explain what this leaves us with. There's this really weird mystery in history, right? What happened to the Christians' religious stuff, right? A lot of these Jews stuff as law-abiding, temple-going Jews, and when they converted to follow Jesus, the whole need for a temple and for priests and for sacrifices suddenly went out the window. This system of observances and cultic practices, such that uh, one of the, the greatest historians of this period, Edwin Judge, asks in this great paper, was Christianity even a religion? 
And certainly the people at the time, under their understanding of what religion was, had trouble seeing Christianity as a religion. Uh, Pliny the Younger, who was one of the uh, Roman governors of, of, of the time, wrote about how confused, really, he found Christianity. Because they got together and all they did was like sing and stuff. <laughs> and eat food. Right? It wasn't human flesh. No, just food. <laughs> really? Yes, in fact, he didn't believe them when they said that. So he had to torture some slave girls to get the truth. And sure enough, all they were doing was singing and eating food, kind of like we do today. And that didn't make sense in the mindset at the time. Christianity didn't make sense as a religion, and that's because it is religion on its head, isn't it? Where God himself provides the sacrifice and the temple. Jesus becomes our obedience for us. Jesus becomes the temple for us. Jesus' body becomes the sacrifice for us. And that's how the great message of grace can be possible. That's why you can come to God and receive your good standing with him as a gift, not as something you have to work with. Not as something you have to work for. Because Jesus himself provides it on our behalf. Christians here, do you believe, do you feel, do you know that it's true that Jesus has taken upon his own body your whole case before God, all your sin and all your need to work, to make a relationship. He has taken that on himself. And that's why your standing before God is a gift. He's done that. He's done that. God does and God approves, not humans do. And God approves. Religion is on its head and that redefines religion totally. So Jesus is misunderstood. He wasn't going to destroy the temple, literally. He was going to take away the need for it. But then there's a claim that they really did understand profoundly accurately. And that's what gets Jesus executed. You see, there's something of a standmate, a, 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 a stalemate, uh, off, so to speak, between Jesus and those on trial. They can't get enough evidence against him. And so in desperation, the person running the trial Great question. If Jesus is quiet at this point, they all go home and nothing happens. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most High? If Jesus is quiet here, he goes home. Uh, I've had a little bit of experience with people in uh, courtrooms and people in police stations, the number of times I wish they just shut their mouth. I did it, but he deserved it. No, just shush, shush. And if Jesus had a lawyer, I'm sure he'd be tearing his hair out now. Because what he says is he says, well, you've said it. That's your way of putting it. And then he refers to a couple of other passages, Daniel 7, uh, 13 to 14, and Psalm 110, verse 1, which basically, when put together, make this extraordinary claim that Jesus is the judge of the world. That actually, while the judge in the Sanhedrin thinks that Jesus is on trial, the person he's judging, Jesus, despite all appearances, is God's chosen judge, his chosen Christ, his chosen king or Messiah, the one who is coming to world to put everything right in the world. The one with the authority to judge the whole world is on trial. 
Is Jesus at this point a crazy person? Because if he is, then it would seem to me that the only injustice in this trial was that he wasn't put in an asylum if they had them in those days. Because obviously he's deluded. He's standing before someone who has the power to decide whether he lives or dies and he's claiming to be the judge of the world, God's chosen king who will restore the world and rule forever. Or is Jesus actually, despite all appearances, the Christ? In which case, the religious leaders of Israel are about to sentence to death the Son of God for blasphemy. Religion is about to kill God. Which is it? You see, who Jesus is at this point is profoundly important, isn't it? It makes the whole difference to what's going on. One of the amazing things about this story is that he seems so serenely in control, doesn't he? This is something I want to ponder on for a moment. He answers nothing until finally incriminating himself, knowing full well what that would mean. And he is led off to be executed. One of the most painful forms of torture and execution mankind has thought up to deal with each other with. And yet he seems serene, confident in his own authority and willing to go to death. Why? What does Jesus think he's doing? Is he a crazy person? Or is he the Christ? There's this wonderful story um, which I was reminded of a a few weeks ago um, about a guy called Father Colby. You may have heard this story before. Uh, Basically, during the the terrible reign of the Nazi party, um, there in Poland were about a million Catholics who were imprisoned um, for basically opposing uh, the the Nazi regime. One of these most notorious death camps was this place called Block 14. Now, they had a rule here uh, which kind of turned the prisoners in against themselves to try to stop anyone escaping. It was, it was really terrible. If one person escaped, that was fine. But then the next morning they would count off ten other people and they would be executed by starvation. So you can imagine when the one person goes to her friends and says, hey, want to help me escape? You've got a good chance that that's going to mean your death. Right? It was a terrible, terrible place to live, particularly if someone happened to get hurt running around, uh, got lost, died out in the, on their own and couldn't be found the next morning, as happened one time when Father Colby was in this particular death camp. And so even though the person had not run away but had actually just died and they found him later, they still, according to the procedures, had to round up ten people who would pay for that act of escape. And as one of the persons was led off He was heard to scream, look, I've got children, I've got a wife, please. His name was Francis Echonacek. And Father Colby, the uh, Polish Catholic priest, heard him and realised that at 47, and a Catholic priest, he didn't have any children, he didn't have a family and any responsibility, he piped up and said to the guard, which is a very, very brave thing to do at the outset. And I said, what do you want? Look, sir, I'm a priest. I'm 47. 
I've got no children. Can I please take that place? If that's what you want to do, go for it. Amazingly, he let him take his place. And he was let off and he was starved to death. Well, actually, he didn't die from starvation. They had to shoot him in the end. But Francis lived until 1995 and he actually moved to Australia and he was reported to have said, so long as I have breath in my lungs, I will consider it my duty to tell people about the heroic act of love by Maximilian Kolbe. He made a switch willingly and joyfully for his life. I wonder how many of us here would be brave enough to do that for a stranger like Francis. I'm actually interested. uh, Some of you may have come with friends today. Um, I'd like you just to turn to the friend next to you and on three you're going to give each other either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. (laughs) I've done this in the past and it has destroyed friendships. It has even, I think, caused the, uh, the breaking up of many a fledgling relationship. But... I want to know whether for a friend of yours you would take a bullet, you would take a life. On three, one, two, three, thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh dear. That's terrible. That's really, really terrible. Okay, just a quick show of hands. Who, who is in a mutually sacrificial relationship? Who's got fantastic, the girl's fantastic. Who is on very clear terms with their friends? They're both thumbs down, that's cool. Alright, and here's the sensitive one. Did anyone just get their heart broken? Right, I think many of you, I'm really impressed, many of you, would at least in theory, God giving you the courage to do it, would in theory contemplate dying for a friend of yours, but I wager that no one in their right mind would give a thumbs up to someone who was their openly declared enemy, would they? Someone who had rejected them, someone who had beaten them, someone that was systematically against them and everything they stood for their whole lives. And yet this is exactly what Jesus thinks he is doing willingly going to his death for the very people who are standing in judgment over him. Willingly dying for the members of that Sanhedrin because some of them, after his death, would follow him and receive the benefit of his death. Jesus thinks he is dying for your sin. Is he a crazy person? Or is he actually the Christ? Romans 5.8 tells us that God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, before the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, Jesus predicted that it would be, and it was sure enough, 69 AD. Jesus is determined to offer one last sacrifice which would make all sacrifice redundant, which will in fact make the temple a thing of the past, which will guarantee that whoever trusts in Jesus 
can stand confidently before the throne of God Almighty on that last day of judgment. When the people who stood in judgment over Jesus, Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, when they meet their maker, their maker is going to say to them, we've already met. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then what you decide about Jesus is profoundly important. And I want to ask this quite offensive question. But if you die and you do meet your maker, will your maker ask you the same question? Haven't we already met? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the Christ? Who will come again in glory not to be judged but to judge the world, to bring justice to the world. Is he the Christ or is he a crazy person? What we think about that, and we all have to make a decision either way. I think the default is crazy person. But what we decide about Jesus is profoundly important. And that's why 2,000 years later we still remember his death every year at Easter. What you decide about Jesus is very, very important. Will we essentially welcome him now to heal us, to take our sin as the humble suffering servant riding on a donkey or will we resist him until he finally comes in judgment, not on a donkey but on a horse to bring justice to the world? I think he's the Christ. And I'm happy to talk about the reasons why I believe that afterwards over afternoon tea. But if he is the Christ, and if you think he is the Christ, it would be appropriate as we approach Easter to pray, wouldn't it? To confess our sin and thank him for taking our sin on himself so that when we meet our maker, we might not fear, but know that He has done everything for us already. I'm going to pray an old prayer. It's not a particularly special prayer, but it's a beautiful prayer, which Christians have been praying for a few hundred years in English. And I'd like you, if you're comfortable, to quietly join along with me. And if you like, if you feel bold, to say amen at the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. But we have gone our own way. We've rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your Son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you more and more. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, can I just share the beautiful news? The beautiful news that if you prayed that prayer with integrity, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you can be assured that the God who is slow to anger and abounding in compassion has forgiven you. You can be assured 
that if you're carrying a burden of the need to work your way to God, that burden has been taken on Jesus. All your guilt, all your shame, all the things you've left undone are on Jesus. And when you meet your maker, you can stand before him with confidence, saying, yes, we have already met. Happy Easter, everybody. Uh, We have a bit of time now for some questions, uh, if you'd like. Now, there's a bunch of different ways you can ask your questions. Uh, One is to write it on your communication card, which we're going to collect on our way out. Another way is there's a phone number here up on the screen and you can text it in. Um, I've received a couple of questions from that number already that I'll start off with, Andy, but feel free to do that away, get clicking as we're talking. Whose number is that? That's my number. Okay. Don't keep texting that tonight. That would be really awkward. It's all right. You can send me nice messages. I don't mind. Um, yes. Uh, all right. First question is... Um, don't trust myself to remember it. Um, uh, if I'm not yet convinced that Jesus isn't a crazy person, but I'm open to considering the idea... Uh, what should I read, uh, what should I do to better consider the question? Yeah, really great question. Um, I can really only speak personally. Different, different reasons why, uh, how they come, different processes that they come. Uh, but for me, it primarily starts with the testimony um, about Jesus, which we have preserved for ourselves in the Bible. Uh, my conviction, um, having uh, studied it, scrutinised it, pulled it apart, is that it is... Uh, profoundly reliable and true. Uh, and whatever your, um, the tools of analysis that you have or the, um, the literary, historical, scientific brain that you have, apply yourself to this book. Read one of the Gospels uh, and, and ask yourself, kind of, what would it take for me to be convinced that this is untrue or true? Um, there are many great books about the historic, historicity Um, of the resurrection, which for me is probably the second most kind of uh, important thing. Um, As a matter of history, I think it's very, very strong case, a very, very strong case can be made that, in fact, Jesus walked out of his tomb on Easter Sunday. And if that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? Um, So, I mean, there's some books I can recommend. John Dixon has some um, great books on it. Uh, Andrew Errington, who was an EU vice president here, has written a book on whether we can trust the Gospels. He's got a a master's in, in the period, in, in history, uh, and it's a very helpful book. Um, just come, maybe come talk to me and I can give you the exact titles of that, but there are fantastic resources. But the, I mean, the third thing would just be talk to some Christians and ask them why they believe it. And hopefully they have a reason. If they don't, they probably should find some. Or stop. You know? um, this, is, this is not the kind of thing that I'm happy to believe it's not true. Can I just say that? Right? Because this actually changes everything. Uh, and so it is right and proper that we bring all the tools that we are using here at university um, to work on this, on this book. Uh, and I'd like to add to that, we have Bibles. If you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. Uh, so at afternoon tea, if you haven't, don't own a Bible yourself, we'd love to give you one so that you can check that out yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question I have, Annie, and probably our last one before we break, yep. uh, is on the flip side. Uh, if I just prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, what should I do now? Uh, well, I'm going to praise the Lord on your behalf. That is exciting news. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if I, I would tell somebody, somebody that you trust, if there's a Christian here that um, you know and trust, um, tell them, because I'm sure they'll be excited to, to, to learn. And when we kind of um, decide something about Jesus, when that, our position on Jesus changes, um, there's a lot to process and a lot to think through. Um, here at the EU, we're not into kind of just emotionally charged decisions in one moment. Uh, we're interested in a deep reflection um, and a solid faith in Jesus because we feel that the truth really, sh- you shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, so talk to somebody and, and see how, um, come talk to me even, or Megan, or anyone. Um, uh, yeah, You've got my number. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, but that is exciting news and don't keep that to yourself. Don't keep that to yourself because um, I'm sure you have a lot of questions as well.